Welcome to this week's episode of Being Human. I'm here with Paul Collier. He is uh, the author of many books, but the one I've read is The Future of Capitalism. Uh, I've got it right here. Um, he's also Professor of Economics and Public Policy at the Blavatnik School of Government at the University of Oxford. Um, he's a fellow of the British Academy. He's a CBE. I know you didn't want me to emphasize all of those things, but uh, yes, um, it feels like a great honor to have you on the show, Paul. So welcome. Thanks. I hate things that are a great honor. So just let's get out of business, eh? <laughs> Thank you, Ray. Okay. <laughs> all right. Let's get down to business. So uh, this, this, this is a show. It's called Being Human. Uh, we do have a very strong focus on what you might call, I don't know, management philosophy, organizational philosophy. And the more that we dive in, or certainly I find myself diving into that uh, realm, you, you start to wonder, well, okay, it can't just be about what goes on in organizations. So let's sort of look at a level up and a level down, like what, what's around what, we, what I see as a, as a consultant to organizations um, that contributes to the way in which organizations are run uh and i guess and that that brings us to the broader broader a, a question of you know what is capitalism and how best do we do capitalism uh and organize our societies so i mean this this is just feels like it's been a great contribution to my broadening of my education like around the topic of 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 management if you like um and so i hope that you know in the course of this conversation we can sort of broaden out you know people's understanding of you know <sighs> What, what they see in organizations for those working within them right now. Um, so the book is called, um, you know, the, the future of capitalism and, and you focus on, you know, the current anxieties or, or the new anxieties. In fact, that's uh, the chapter of one of your, your, one of the chapters of the book. So I wonder if we should start there. Like what, what's your assessment of the current anxieties that exist in our societies? Yeah, so I very much believe in capitalism. It's the only system over you know, about 5,000 years of human civilization which has actually proved capable of living, of raising mass living standards, so, and indeed transforming them. Um, so I believe in capitalism, but, um, but capitalism doesn't work just on autopilot. It'd uh, be nice if it did, and that's the sort of fairy tale that some people tell themselves that markets work and all, you know, just get government out of the way and everything will be fine. And that's just not right, unfortunately. Um, left to itself, um, capitalism uh, driven by market forces uh, can go all over the place um, and every now and then derails derails sometimes quite badly. I, I sort of count three big derailments, um, and we're living through one. And this started around 1980 in a, in a lot of the OECD economies, um, but very obviously in uh, America and Britain. Um, and that derailment was two new um, social divides. and. Uh, uh, and they were new. The, 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 the previous 200 years, so the first 200 years of capitalism, these two particular divides have been getting narrower. And one was a spatial divide between um, very prosperous regions and very poor regions. And until 1980, for, for about 200 years, the gap between the really rich regions and the poor regions had been narrowing. 
And then from 1980, it starts to widen again. Um, pretty well all across the OECD, it becomes a difference, a divergence between the booming metropoles, the, the New Yorks, the Londons, the Paris, um, uh, and, um, and provincial uh, towns and cities, which periodically get broken. Um, like the city I grew up in, which was Sheffield. When I, when, I, when I lived in Sheffield a long time ago, it was a really prosperous city, and now it's, uh, now it's the poorest big city in, in, in England. Um, uh, and market forces which broke Sheffield in around the early 1980s, there's a famous film called The Full Monty about it. Um, I remember it. Uh, yeah, so this, you know, it was my relatives. Um, uh, becoming unemployed. Um, so and I got one foot in economic disaster uh, and one foot in the overspill from booming London. I now live in North Oxford, which is, you know, my street is just full of London bankers and lawyers and we're very, very prosperous. Um, so I'm the sort of luxury overspill from, uh, from booming metropoles. So that was one Big, big new spatial divide. Um, and the other was a new educational divide. And again, until about 1980, for 200 years, uh, less educated people had been catching up with more educated people, you know, with the spread of literacy and things like that. Um, and from 1980, that went into reverse. Um, the, um, the, 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 Less educated people had invested in manual skills and technology and globalization started to make those less and less valuable. Um, and people like me, um, and I mean, both my parents were school when they were 12. So I was from a totally non-educated family. Um, but I just sort of happened to hit the little window when you could get a good state education uh, in a in a in a city now very poor, um, and so I you know I got to Oxford and I ascended the, the the normal ladders of academic success by one fluke or another. I got a chair at Harvard. I still got a chair in Paris where I lectured and so on, and, and I still lecture in Oxford. Um, so that that became the new divergence. The, the, the fancy skills like lawyers and bankers were built upon going to a, getting, getting a good university education. And the manual skills that most people had actually invested in were becoming less and less valuable. So those are the two big new social cleavages. Um, that was the derailment of capital and capitalism that started in 1980. Um, previously, the derailments of capitalism the mass unemployment of the 1930s, the health crisis of the 1840s, both of which were terrible, um, but they'd both been fixed up. There'd been active public policy um, that had actually put the train back on the rails. And this time, which was really peculiar, for 40 years, those anxieties were just left to build up. And they built mm. up to the point where they blew up. And that was Trump in America, or it was Brexit in 
Britain. Um, it was the Gijon in in, uh, in France, and the, the the Le Pen surge and so on. So um, all around the OECD, you get these neglects of these cleavages, these widening cleavages, right. um, and uh, and the mutinies. So that's the background against. Here's these new anxieties. Why don't we wake up and face them, put capitalism back on the rails? And business has a central role in that. It had a central role in uh, what went wrong, and it's going to have a central role in putting things back together. Right. Yeah. Uh, But but that's just, yeah, that's that's one facet of our societies, right? How we organize our organizations, but you also focus in on the family. And the role of the state, which is why I love the book, actually, you know, from somebody with, you know, I guess in some sense of only a narrow education around sort of management and organizations, you know, you, 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 you paint that landscape, which, uh, which I appreciate. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, wake up, which is a little bit different from work. Um, so I think, I think the under, underlying what was going wrong was a, two or three really bad ideas um, which sort of infected business. Um, One was a misunderstanding of how much we could know about the world. Uh, One was a misunderstanding about human nature, right? what humans were like. Um, And one was a misunderstanding about um, human rights, really. So... Um, we became obsessed with um, uh, an idea that um, the world was fully knowable if only you picked the smart enough people to run it. Um, and that was the big knowledge misunderstanding, um, a failure to appreciate what's now called radical uncertainty. Um, there was a, a belief, a sort of Economics bought into a very crude depiction of evolutionary theory, which was kicking around in the 1950s, which was a a sort of Darwinian uh, survival of the the fittest. Um, And so economics sort of picked up a very bleak view of human nature that we're just greedy, lazy, and selfish. Um, And that turns out to be a complete travesty of what modern evolutionary biology is telling us. Mm. Um, There's just a fundamental misunderstanding of human nature. And then the final one is is this notion that um, rights can be divorced from obligations so that individuals have rights and the state has obligations to fulfill them, and there's nothing else. Uh, in sort of moral landscape. Um, and all of these three ideas are terribly wrong-headed, but have now been exploded. Um, the Future of Capitalism was in one sense quite a pioneering book because it, it's anticipated a tidal wave of subsequent research, um, which I'll be trying to sort of pull in briefly. There are... There are sort of three masterful books which came out after the future of capitalism, and each of which reinforces one part of it. Right. 
That's the, to my mind, that's the sort of agenda. Let's, uh, let's clear away these lousy ideas which infected business schools for 40 years, um, which are now actually being abandoned, thank goodness. Right? If you go to go right. now to school, you learn different things than if you went 10 years ago. Yeah, so that's what I had to say. I'm, I'm, I'm in fact, I'm fairly good friends with somebody at Ox, Oxford University, and uh, that's what she tells me is that the curriculum is, is changing significantly. Yeah. 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 Um, Okay, so well, I mean, let's. I mean, maybe, maybe there's a good good framing for for the next part of the conversation. Then, so I mean, let's start with the this idea that we're we're selfish and ruthless, and and that should be our sort of model for how we you know base capitalism. So, what's you know what's wrong about that, and how are we different? Yeah. Okay. Very good. So, um, there are a couple of wonderful books that have come out since, but I'll I'll just show one. Um, Nicholas Christakis Blueprint. Um, the evolutionary origins of a good society. Right? And Christakis, who's Christakis, he's head of evolutionary biology at Yale. His counterpart, uh, 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 Joe Heinrich at Harvard, head of evolutionary biology at Harvard, come out with a couple of wonderful books, and they all agree on the same, same thing, um, which is that, yeah, humans are mammals, but we're very, very unusual mammals. Right? Other mammals really very largely are just greedy, lazy, and selfish, as economics assumes. You know, simple economics behavior embedded in a model um, where very greedy, insatiable uh, consumption demands, um, we're very lazy, um, formally work enters negatively into the utility function. We don't want to work. Work is a bad, um, which makes us very lazy. Uh, and we're incredibly selfish. There's just me. Um, uh, that's what I'm trying to maximize. I'm trying to maximize my utility. Huh? Um, uh, that very well describes um, my cat, Grisou. Um, she is absolutely <laughs> greedy, lazy, and selfish, and not much else, really. Um, you don't believe me, ask the dog, right? Um, uh, so economics has built a very good working theory of a cat. I, I call it catus economicus. Um, as a description of a human being, it's a complete travesty. We are a mammal, and so we've got that element in us, that's a bit greedy, a bit lazy, and a bit selfish. Um, in the wrong environment, we can be dragged down to be little better than a cat. Right? But um, what evolutionary biology is telling us is that we only survived as mammals when we came down onto the savannah from up in the trees. We only survived by forming new instincts an evolutionary process which made us quite extraordinarily pro-social and cooperative and collaborative in groups. Um, And so our natural, um, as it were, uh, organizational entity is a group. Um, From the moment of birth, our first sense of identity is belonging to a group. 
We only get an idea of ourselves as an individual from being a member of a group. So we start in a group, and um, uh, so our identity is a group identity. That's what it, we want to belong to the group. We want to have the good opinion of other people in the group. And to get that good opinion of other people in the group, we need to behave well to other members of the group. And that creates a, a sort of tension um, between the things we would like to do for ourselves, catus economicus, and the things that we need to do in order to get the good opinion of the group, which is yeah. economicus. And so uh, a genuine theory of the human being builds in this tension between our sense of moral obligation that's a mutuality, working with others in a group um, towards some common purpose. And humans are not really utility maximizers. We are goal-directed. We want to fulfill goals. And we have multiple goals, depending upon what, which identity becomes salient. When I think of yeah. myself as a father, um, you know, there's, there's goals that I want to achieve as a father. Um, uh, what it means to be a good father. Um, when I think of myself as a professor, there's goals I want to achieve as a, as a good professor, right? Um, and so on and so forth. So these are, these are groups, um, the family, my workplace, and so on, uh, all of which have these um, norms, uh, group norms of what it is to behave well in the group. And it turns out that we take most of our decisions not using our individual smarts, um, but using the collective wisdom of the group. Why do we do that? Because it's smart. Um, because the collective wisdom of the group has uh, a lot more uh, experience, a lot more wisdom, has seen a lot, um, knows a lot more than we can possibly do just as individuals. And so... Um, over the course of the last uh, 300,000 years, our individual brain size has actually been shrinking. Um, we're probably less smart than the average Neanderthal um, individually. Wow. Uh, but we're very much better at cooperating in groups. And why is our individual little brains shrunk a bit? We don't need them as much. Uh, it's the collective mind that is guiding most of our decisions. And sometimes that's awful, but mostly it's very much better than we could do with our individual smarts. Right? So, um, uh, so that's the that's the starting point about human nature. Where we're naturally designed, we're hardwired for building mutual obligations, mutuality, yeah. caring about each other. We're not saints. Um, and trying to turn us into saints is a menace because there's always that capitalist had economic as in us. We're always facing this tension between what we ought to do and, and what, we, what we individually want to do. And if you push it too far, if you demand that we're all saints, we won't be. Some people will be posturing ostentatious, uh, sanctimonious, um, um, uh, anti-saint types. Um, uh, who are a bloody nuisance. Um, so we need to pitch the bar at a level where most people 
can get over it, can, can actually meet the obligations of mutuality. Um, that's that's a, a well-run society. And some societies, some countries have managed to build mutuality like that to an astonishing degree. Um, you know, if you look around the most successful societies in the world on all these metrics of well-being and what have you, are the, the Nordics, Singapore perhaps, you know, this is a, 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 um, Denmark and Norway are always sort of in, right up there in the top three on all, almost anything you care to measure. Um, like Bhutan. <laughs> <laughs> Bhutan, yeah. Um, so um, mutuality is a very uh, um, powerful force um, uh, and it can, it can reconcile um, uh, mass prosperity uh, with a lot of um, individual agency and enterprise. Um, and that, that takes me, if you want to sort of move us on a bit, to this myth of the um, all-knowing chief executive or the, or the all-knowing um, uh, commander and chief of a country, you know, um, uh, which was the sort of business model for years. You know, all you need to do is get the super smart guy, um, uh, put him in charge, and then his problem is how to run things, how to motivate others. And uh, that's where if you're motivating a load of catas economicus, I can tell you the only way to do it is cat food. And so... Um, uh, so chief executives were encouraged to build monitored incentives. You, you sit there on top of a bunch of lady greed, lazy, greedy people who are less smart than you are. Um, and so you put the cat food down just where you want them to perform and you monitor, you scrutinize them like crazy to make sure that they do. That was the business model that came in, um, basically with Friedman, and um, uh, and economics contributed something called principal agent theory, which sort of said, said how much cat food you need to put down um, in order to to to, to get maximising behaviour. It turned out really an awful lot of cat food. So that was why bonuses and incentives exploded massively. Right? Yeah, well, there's one stat in the book which I which I appreciate about Deutsche Bank. They, they gave 71, I don't know which year this was, 71 billion in bonuses to their employees and only 19 billion to shareholders, right? Yes, that's right. That's right. That's right. I, I was so, staggered by that. I mean, I knew there was a bonus culture, but that really, you know, right, that right, really right, hit. Right. Um, that's, that's, uh, that's right. Um, and you get these huge increases in uh, inequality between the pay of the of the so-called stars um, who know everything and, uh, and, and everybody else who's then just sort of bossed around. Um, and what's exploded all that um, is, is, uh, is this book. Yeah. Uh, Radical Uncertainty. Radical Uncertainty. I've just written a book with John Kay um, uh, called Greed is Dead, which is not available in America yet. It's coming out in May 2022, believe it or not. Um, uh, but um, America's resistant to that message, perhaps. <laughs> um, the, um, 
There are various reasons why a publisher wants to wait, but, uh, but, but um, one of which is that uh, the future of capitalism is still selling like crazy, so they don't want to spoil, spoil the party, as it were. Um, um, uh, as is the future, as is uh, the radical uncertainty. Um, you know, both, both, both John and I have got... Uh, so it was John's idea that we actually write a book together um, because he, he said, well, you know, I can bring this concept of radical uncertainty to the table and you can bring this concept of mutuality to the table. And, uh, and that has proved a very, very sort of fertile meeting of minds. Um, but the big point of uh, radical uncertainty is that the world is so complex uh, that it is unknowable, the modern world. And the reason it's so complex is that what's driving it fundamentally is human decisions, human behavior. And human behavior is driven by our minds, individual and collective, and our brains alone are by far the most complex organization in the entire universe. There's no entity in the whole universe, including the the whole universe itself, other than the brain, which gets anywhere close to the complexity of the human brain. We've been studying it in great detail for 100 years. We, we, We have very little idea how it works. It's not anything like a computer. We know that. This is a chemical process, right? Um, uh, and that's just an individual brain. But remember, our decisions are taken predominantly by the accumulation of our collective mind, which is a bunch of brains um, working together. So infinitely complex, um, uh, completely beyond um, human power to predict. Um, uh, and so the idea that you just need to get a smart guy who fully understands how the world works is a, is, is just a fundamental misconception. And once you step back and say, okay, we're living in a world that's too complex to understand fully, think of COVID, think of the global financial crisis, um, you know, think of the uh, dot, dot com, um, and so on. You know. um, these are all episodes of massive radical uncertainty. Um, and you say, well, okay, if we if we don't sort of know the model, the model is just unknowable. Um, what do we do? What do we do? Well, we run things very differently. Um, we we learn fast. How do we learn fast? Uh, we do experiments in parallel, uh, and we learn from others. Um, uh, so let's, let's explore that experiments in parallel. But how does a firm or a country do experiments in parallel? Uh, and, uh, and the answer looks something like this. Um, you need to establish some common purpose, some common objective. This is what we're trying to do. No. No, with COVID, um, we're trying to um, cut down deaths 
without um, sacrificing economic activity. That's kind of a fundamental decision problem. How do you do that? Don't know. You know, certainly in, <laughs> in early 2020, we didn't know. Um, what do you need? Variation, experiment. You try this, you try that. But around this common purpose, you need fairly rapidly to establish a common purpose. Now, you can then split those common purposes up, but the most elementary common purpose was trying not to infect other people. We didn't know that COVID was spread from one person to another. Right? So uh, a good model was to say, whatever else we do, let's try not to infect your, your neighbour, as it were. Um, and we also knew that mortality rates were very different. I'm much more likely to die from COVID than you are. So um, uh, it's important to protect me from you. Um, You don't really need to be protected from me, anything like as much. So I need to stay out of the way of you so you can get on with your life. Um, But you need to keep clear of me um, so that you know you don't bring your kids along to play with me so they they inadvertently kill kill granny right um, and so that wasn't very complicated and um, a few good leaders of societies really understood that I, I, I'm very impressed by in Denmark by Meta Fredriksson and um, Meta Fredriksson is a ordinary woman she's single mother um, not a whole lot of education um, but she understood that and in particular because she was an ordinary person she was very trusted by ordinary dames and so when she said look this is what we need to do people didn't say oh you say we but you mean you don't know who we are um, uh, she was trusted and so in effect, she became the communicator-in-chief for Denmark. Yeah. She never claimed to be the commander-in-chief. Um, but, but basically, she said, okay, here's what you need to do. If you're an old guy like Paul here, stay out of the way of, of Richard over there so that he can get on with his life um, and send his kids to school and so on. But Richard, don't bring your kids and kill granddad, you know? Um, so that was a responsibility that she was able to build. Here's a new common purpose. Right. And then you, in your context, work out how best to do that. Right? Um, uh, but basically, um, try not to kill your neighbor, right? Uh, protect your neighbor. And then in America, what was going on at the same time? Well, um, just to just to, just to think on that, but that required not just the people trusting her, but her trusting the people absolutely. to act absolutely. in their own context, as absolutely. you say. So, so that's you know, that's, 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 that's she yeah. saw herself as communicator in chief, not commander in chief, not bossing them yeah. about, just communicating. And he has a new common purpose, which we don't really know how to achieve. But this is the responsibility. Trump, whatever you do. Don't affect other people. Does that mean not in groups more than 14 or so? No, it just means protect other people. Don't, you know, so it's not a load of detailed 
top-down rules, it's a moral responsibility that everybody has towards each other. No? And then I go across to America, March 2020, what do I, what do I see? Queues, long queues outside gun shops. No? Um, rampant, you know, this is after four decades of rampant individualism, my rights, my, my, this, my, that, right? My right to protect myself, how? By buying a gun, shoot my neighbor, right? Um, now, it turns out that shoot my neighbor is not as effective as protect my neighbor in reducing the incidence of COVID. Um, and so um, that was a contrast between radical individualism and in, in America, four decades of it, whereas in Denmark, you'd have four decades of building mutuality, a sort of communitarian approach to um, we've all got responsibilities. We can only run this society if we all take responsibility for each other. Um, so Denmark never got the first wave of COVID, never got the second. It did get caught a bit over Christmas with the third, got rid of it very fast, very fast. Uh, but also had the lowest economic hit in Europe yeah. um, because people were able to get on with their lives. It wasn't a load of fussy top-down, do this, do that. It was people working it out for themselves. Well, you, you know, of course we can send our kids to school, but we won't send the kids around to granny. Yeah. Um, anyway, so that was the, the, the sort of mutuality in practice um, in the level of a country now, at the level of a firm, and, and this is really important, if you're running a command and control top-down, um, uh, I know best, um, here's the commands, and here's where the cat food is, and I'm going to watch you like a hawk. Um, what you lose there, what the commander-in-chief doesn't get is, if you like, willing compliance around a purpose. Um, mm. He gets people scurrying around after cat food, and after a while, what their big interest is, is how can I get to the cat food without actually doing what this bastard wants? Huh? Yeah. Um, and that is um, a psychological process called reactance. If you're, if you're deprived of autonomy, you try and reestablish autonomy by doing the opposite of what you're being ordered to do, but you still want the cat food. So you, you gain it. You do whatever. Yeah. Um, and so in uh, you know, the, the Bear Stearns, you may remember Bear Stearns, Bear Stearns doesn't exist. Yeah, yes, yeah. Um, bless it. But um, their slogan, their, their mission statement in their lobby was, we make nothing but money. What an inspiring, you know, you, who, who wants to work for the Bear Stearns? We make nothing but money. Well, the sort of people it attracted, I think, stuck a couple, little, a couple of little words at the end of that. Uh, we make nothing but money for ourselves. Um, and, um, and now there was, it was very clear where the cat food was put down, um, you got a bonus for doing a deal, um, uh, which kicked in commission and so on for the firm. So um, 
there was the cat food. Um, how could you get the cat food, lots of it, um, without actually doing what the firm needed? And the answer was, you took, you entered into deals which um, were pretty risky, um, but by the time they blew up, you'd have got your bonus. Um, and so, um, you know, who bankrupted Bear Stearns? The employees of Bear Stearns. Yeah. With deals which blew up. Um, uh, so, but, but did they make a lot of money for themselves? Sure, you know. Um, so that's the problem with the, um, with the top-down, I know the best, here's the command and control, here's the cat food. What's the alternative? Well, the alternative is um, something analogous to what Meta Fredrickson did in Denmark, set a common purpose for the firm. And it doesn't have to be we've got to save the world. Right? That's a silly sort of objective. It can be a very practical objective. Um, uh, we, we, we want to discover a, um, uh, a, a vaccine or something like that. That's a very clear purpose. It's good for the firm, but good for society as well. So it's a, it's a purpose that um, you can defend in public and say, you know, this is, we're trying to build a better mousetrap. That's fine. Yeah. That's fine. People want a better mousetrap. That'll improve people's lives, except for mice. Um, so that's just fine, right? A purpose. Um, not a purpose which is socially destructive. Yeah. That, that, you know, if your purpose is let's get people addicted to this drug um, so they'll buy a lot of it um, until they drop it. social media platform, which... Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, you know, I've I, I got three teenagers um, in the house. And... The, 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 um, um, Trying to drag them off the uh, addictive properties of games is a, you know, damn new, especially when you know that the games are designed to give these little uh, pleasure hits um, every few minutes, so that they that the decision problem faced by the mathematicians who've built those algorithms, who are the cleverest people in the world, is how to keep how do you keep people on that screen for as long as possible. Um, that's not actually a very admirable purpose. You know, it's not a socially defensible purpose. Do we really want teenagers to be just on the screen um, uh, playing games for as long as possible? No. Right? Why does the firm maximise um, uh, screen time? You maximise advertising revenue, but it's not a worth. It's not a worthwhile, socially worthwhile purpose. So it has to be a socially worthwhile purpose. But, that, but there are an awful lot of very socially worthwhile purposes that firms do. Otherwise, we wouldn't, you know, we, we wouldn't have prosperity. And, uh, but then you say, that's the purpose. We don't actually, we, we want to get a vaccine. We don't know how to do it. Um, and then the genius of devolved capitalism is you can both evolve and compete and collaborate all at the same time. So you devolve down to teams where people naturally um, join into a team, get a common purpose, which you've set. 
I was communicator in chief. You set this new common purpose, and then you leave it to the teams. And each team tries in its own wonderful way. And then the business of the chief executive is to hoover up the evidence from all that experiment and say, this is working, this isn't. Go on, look, let's try that one. You know? um, and, uh, and that is the, the real genius of capitalism. And that is the dynamic. It's not sort of static efficiency. It's a dynamic process of innovation. Yeah. Um, and we've, we've organized uh, business um, with too little attention for dynamics and innovation and too much for maximum efficiency within a known system. Yeah. We're not yeah. in a known system. We never will be. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so we need to just get back to what capitalism really is best at, which is this mixture of teams competing against each other, but then collaborating. Um, and all the great tra life-transforming innovations, you know, um, uh, John Kay's favorite example is, is the Airbus, um, which, uh, as he says, you know, nobody on earth knows how to know make an Airbus. No chief executive. Airbus is a collaboration between a lot of firms, uh, each one of which is itself a, a mass of uh, individual teams. Um, uh, but it's a but it's a it's a long term collaboration based on on trust. Um, in the future of capitalism, I've got the example of um, of how Toyota. Bankrupt to General Motors, which is a, is a sort of fascinating story worked out. I, I learned it from uh, uh, Rebecca Henderson at Harvard Business School. Right? And, um, uh, um, and, and the genius of Toyota was not some great technological innovation. It was a different management system which enabled them to devolve agency to little teams on the production line. Um, so, that the, so that Toyota's only competitive advantage over General Motors was that the workforce bought in to the company's objective, which was let's build a fault-free car. Um, and in order to do that, you, the only way you could do it was devolve agency to the individual workers in teams on the production line. Um, yeah. uh, well, I love from your the story of the book is because uh, the, there's the famous and on court, right? Yeah, Which is where right. any worker on the line could and they, pull and the they court. put him into General Motors, and it's finally after after the fifteenth consultancy report saying what was going wrong, uh, the chief executive got it. So he said, "They got and on courts, we get and on courts," right? and they hung them up and. Uh, and what happened? Um, the line managers knew if Fred had got a cord that he could pull that would inflict $10,000 a minute damage on General Motors. By God, he hated General Motors management. He was going to pull it. And so what did the line managers do? Because they were on bonuses as well. They tied the unknown cords up. If you wanted a great visible symbol of we don't trust you, 
that line of tied on and up and on cords must be must take a biscuit, right? Yeah, um, I mean that was my favorite image of the book. You know that that just seemed to sum up you know the difference in levels of yeah. trust, right? Absolutely, course, perfectly yeah, illustrated. General Motors started this story as the most profitable company that had ever existed on earth. It ended up bankrupt. Yeah. Yeah. Toyota didn't. Toyota won a very, very unlikely struggle with this giant company that had far more resources and initially far more consumer loyalty. Um, so it was a massive demonstration of the power of devolution, shared agency, mutuality. Yeah. We moved away yeah. from it. We moved away from it. That was the tragedy. Business and you school. wonder whether GM started with, with more mutuality, higher levels of trust, or, or whether they, they devolved into having less trust. No, interesting to know the history. There is some, some sort of work on those, on those issues, the early history of, of the American motor industry. Um, but it seems to have fairly rapidly morphed into this sort of um, thing parodied by Charlie Chaplin, you know, um, the, uh, the cog in the wheel. Um, uh, so, and that, that sort of worked until it didn't work, basically. Um, and, but it's, of course, it's not just true of the automotive industry. I mean, something we've highlighted on the show several times is the le- level of disengagement just ac- across ac- across all firms, you know, across all t- it's, it's extraordinary, the levels of disengagement. People just, you know, show up and get, get, get on with the job, but uh, levels of engagement are very low. Yeah, and, um, and of course, the same with government, because government, <laughs> absolutely government, decided to copy the techniques in business. Uh, um, pioneered by the, the British government. Um, and so the, this uh, monitored incentive stuff um, uh, got adopted, got infected government um, uh, to an astounding degree. I mean, he tells the story in the, um, the, um, the head of the British Civil Service um, uh, was put on a bonus system, an annual bonus system um, uh, with a performance contract um, incentivized and judged by the Prime Minister. Um, can you imagine? There's the head of the civil services of a country um, who's supposed to be motivated by getting by bonus because I've done a good job this year. Um, if you can't be proud of being head of the British Civil Service. And if that isn't an incentive to do a good job, if you actually want some, you know, some cat food placed exactly here and in order to do a good job, you're the wrong person in the job. You've not yeah. understood what it is to be head of the civil service. That's the, the honest truth. Yeah. Um, and, of course, all these things were complete sham. Um, uh, how could a prime minister observe? You know, so everything was, was designed around these shams, which then um, uh, became a pyramid of uh, sham incentive schemes across the public sector. But, but what was not sham was the loss of agency and the loss of trust. 
Yeah. And so if you think business is disengaged, just look at the public sector. Um, and that is a, a, you know, a tragedy of this model of the top knows best. Um, and Britain suffers from this massively. It's a, a very, very centralised government decision process in the whole of the OECD. Um, with with the uh, with the exception of Scotland, where um, power has been devolved to Edinburgh and a little bit to, to Cardiff, um, so an amazingly centralised government decision structure, um, uh, and the incidents, incentives seem to the instincts seem to be centralised more even within government. So you you move all decision taking basically into the treasury. Um, uh, uh, you know, nominally to Downing Street, but, but to ten Downing Street, but actually to eleven. Um, with the uh, with the Treasury doing this um, close monitoring and scrutiny, um, and uh, that, that would be fine if the Treasury really did know everything. It doesn't. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I think I give the example in the book of um, the Treasury um, trying to estimate the value of the 3G mobile phone network. <laughs> That's right, yes. Uh, where they estimated it was worth £2 billion. And one of my colleagues at Oxford um, managed to get to them and explain that um, there, there was a much better way of finding out what it was worth, which was a, a rather complicated system of auctions. And the, the only unlikely part of this story is the Treasury listened. I think he was recognised as a very, very fancy economist indeed, so they better not mess with him. Um, and instead of getting $2 billion, uh, they got $20 billion. So the British Treasury was out by a factor of 10 right? on, a, on a something that was, in, a, in one sense, a very well-defined problem. What is a 3 yeah. mobile phone network? Well, when you get to something like COVID... Um, it's not even a well-defined problem. You, you can, yeah. um, uh, whatever question you ask, it turns out, if it's a meaningful question, it turns out to be ambiguous in interpretation. Um, yeah. And uh, so um, we, you know, the, the level of we don't know um, that should be um, uh, searing the souls of Treasury officials uh, is very high, um, but actually they're running the show as if they know everything. Right. I mean, that's a really you know powerful e- example now. I reflect on it again because you, you see the mechanics in action there. They've, they've devolved. Right. Every firm now has the opportunity to come up with its own estimate of what they think it's worth. There's, there's some competition between those firms, uh, and it gets you to a much you know better outcome for yeah. everybody. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so um, devolved. That, that, that's the real genius of capitalism: this um, ability to devolve, collaborate, and compete. Um, uh, in, in, and sometimes you need to collaborate. Sometimes you need to compete. Sometimes you need to collaborate at a high level. Sometimes at a low level. The basic principle is um, subsidiarity. Collaborate at the lowest level. At which it's necessary for that problem. 
Yeah, and you can imagine in that scenario, there would have been some collaboration between some of the vendors and their suppliers to come up what they think is the right mm-hmm. price. They, they, so. they form consortia, and that's what happened. Yeah. Um, the, and the, the, you need this sort of flexible system where you can rapidly move to a higher level of collaboration if you need it, low level, otherwise it's a default option. Um, um, the, I, I somehow tell the story of the uh, Israeli Air Force, which is generally recognized as about as efficient an organization as you can possibly get, you know, competent. And um, uh, they have a system. Now, it's a military hierarchy, and so there is a hierarchy. All militaries run with a much more clear hierarchical structure than is appropriate for most decision-taking. But even in the Israeli Air Force, where you've got a clear hierarchy, um, uh, that hierarchy is suspended during combat. Why? Because context matters. At any, you know, if you've got five pilots flying in a conflict, um, one will be in a better position to see what's going on than any of the others. And so the, the, the Israeli Air Force decision rule is that in combat, whichever pilot has the best view of what's going on, they take command. That overrules the normal military hierarchy. Right? So it's completely flexible, defined by context and purpose. Um, and so that tells you even a military hierarchy needs actually to be flexible. Yeah. Um, the level of collaboration is going to change radically depending on, upon the, the actual context um, of a combat. Um, and even who's in charge should change. Now, that's the military. Most organizations, most decision problems are much less well-suited to hierarchy than that because they don't need instant decisions with somebody in charge. Um, uh, There's much more suited to um, discussion within a group. Yeah. Uh, so, um, So moving to a style of business in which we actually harness the, if you like, the advantages of radical uncertainty. Thanks to radical uncertainty, we can get constant innovation. We can move forward. Um, there's some yeah, and that's something that's not emphasised enough, right? We consider uncertainty, you know, as this thing to fear at some level, right? But this, you know, flipping it and saying, no, 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 that's the source of, you know, our opportunity. There's some fascinating research going on in very, very hard science. Um, uh, my next Nord neighbor is uh, a world-famous professor of nanotechnology and quantum. Um, and um, uh, so what's going on in hard science is a recognition that actually noise uh, is advantageous. Noise speeds the process of learning. If there's no noise in a system, you can't learn. Um, and so... Um, if you want a, if you want a dynamic process of improvement, which is what what all human existence is about, um, 
you actually need um, quite a lot of noise, um, which is the uncertainty. Um, and so uncertainty is a blessing. Um, it produces the ambiguity the, uh, and the need to search and experiment and the ability to learn from improvements. Um, so no noise, no learning. Um, you're just stuck in whatever condition you're in, um, yeah. which was true of humanity for a long time. We got stuck. Um, uh, and it was true of you know, some firms. They get, the general waiters, they got stuck. Um, and so you, you need the, 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 the sort of shocks of uncertainty uh, and then the intelligent responses of rapid learning um, that gives you a that gives you a dynamic. Yeah, yeah. Now this is you know I think we've we've just been focusing on firms now and how we can think about managing and leading them. But um, I mean, what obviously what you detail in the book then is is this these this broader set of ideas about you know what what's what's the best context in order for us to have these dynamic firms that embrace uncertainty and and, and are innovators. So, you know, what have we got to change about the, the context in which we're doing business or society at large to have yeah. this happen? So that's the move to um, mutuality. And the, again, the key book that's come out since the future of uncertainty uh, is, uh, is Michael Sandel's book, uh, The Tyranny of Merit, um, uh, which is a, 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 a devastating critique of um, of Rawls' concept of distributive justice, I think, which is um, uh, where um, basically um, in a meritocracy there are uh, there are there are people who are capable of taking decisions and doing things, and uh, and the people who are just passive, they don't have agency, um, and. Uh, you, your obligation in distributive justice is to be kind to them. So there's the, the productive, generous, who nobly uh, give um, universal basic income or whatever to the um, unproductive, um, useless. Um, uh, and that asymmetric agency, um, the, the able have the agency, and they are the saints because they are generous. Um, this is distributive justice. That's, this that's is that distributive idea. justice. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, and the, uh, the useless, uh, their role is really just to be grateful um, right. and enjoy the consumption. You know, what are we? We're greedy, lazy, selfish cats. And so we just lie there and consume. Oh, great. You know, uh, thank you for feeding me. Um, uh, meow. Um, well, um, that isn't um, a, um, a very satisfactory world at all. And it's the world which produced, um, it's a very arrogant world, um, uh, in which um, the, the saintly productive um, do things to and for other people. Um, uh, just as I feed my cat. And um, that is just no good at all because it doesn't um, uh, acknowledge uh, uh, everybody is entitled to agency. 
Uh, indeed, I'd argue that it's basically fundamentally inimical to, uh, to the principles of democracy. Um, it's the sort of society that, in a way, um, China uh, can, get, can get away with the idea that you know, the party knows best. Right. And the party knows best is kind of the equivalent of um, we, the meritorious, know best. Um, uh, um, but, um, but then China doesn't pretend to um, espouse the principles of democracy and mutual agency. Um, it's actually a critique of mutual agency. It's a, much too dangerous to have mutual agency. You just get disorder. Right? Um, uh, so you know, the, the, the meritocrats are really are stuck because in the end, um, within the OECD, they're very largely believe in democracy and the principles. Um, but they're stuck in this bizarre world of, um, uh, of where uh, we are entitled to, we deserve our agency, and it's better. It's, it's a better I mean, rules world in, in many ways, this maximum principle, um, is better for you not to have the power of decision, um, you silly people, because we know what's best for you. Um, very much an attitude that you still hear in actually um, amongst the insider class that we know best for the outsider class what is best for them. And so in their own interests, they should let us run things. Right? Well, you hear that a lot in the sort of elite, you know, pe- people voting um, against their self-interest, right? You hear that quite a lot. That's you hear right. that in the Brexit debate. You know, people, oh, I can't understand That's why right. these people have voted against their self-interest. That's right, because they're too stupid. Um, and, uh, and so the we know best um, exists in that world where we, the, 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 the insiders, understand how the world works, and you, the outsiders, don't. And so that's why we deserve agency. But fortunately, we're generous. And so um, you're lucky that we are saints, you know. Um, your role is to be grateful and, as I say, lie back and be a happy cat. Um, that is fundamentally ethically flawed, and that's, that's what Michael Sandel's Tyranny of Merit points out. So he comes up with this concept of contributive justice in which everybody has an obligation to contribute to the whole and as I argue in the future of capitalism, it's, it's, the, it's by meeting our obligations that support the rights that we have. Um, mm. uh, uh, we can't have a successful structure in which all the obligations are uh, landed on the door of the state, which then depends, runs the system uh, by this um, uh, putting cat food down and ordering people about. That's the, that's the world we've built over the last 40 years. It doesn't work. It can't work because we don't know the world. Um, it's a travesty of uh, how humans behave, and we're naturally inclined, and what does work, therefore, is this mutuality um, uh, where we've all got um, 
a duty to contribute and all get a sense of fulfillment and purpose by being able to contribute. Right. Of course, we've yeah. built over the last 40 years a society in which it's very hard for some people to contribute. They're just not equipped to contribute. They live in places where there are no longer decent jobs and they're no longer trained um, to, uh, to do uh, the demanding jobs that, um, that would be needed in, the ta- in, the, in these places. And so there's a, this a, a, a double task of bringing job opportunities for productive work to places where people feel they belong and equipping those people with the skills they need in order to be do, to do this. So there's a place-based um, focus on bringing um, clusters of, um, of, of uh, jobs that require skills. To That's one package of policies that need to work. Um, can loosely think of as leveling up. And then another set of policies, which is um, equipping people with the skills they need, which you can loosely think of as um, the, the whole um, training agenda beyond just going to university. Right. Yeah. Half the population of Britain doesn't go to university and uh, doesn't want to. Um, the idea that the only route to success is go to university is a crazy, again, it's a travesty. The, the, the most successful um, uh, high school country in, in Europe is Switzerland. Um, and Switzerland is not um, you know, a Marxist paradise by any stretches. You know, it, it's not, it's, a, it's a very much a capitalist society, Switzerland. But it's got devolved agency at the local level and mutuality at the local level in which firms collaborate with uh, colleges of training um, to equip the young people in that town or city to do the skilled work that the firms uh, anticipate will be needed. Yeah, and I love the story of your German au pair in the book. Yeah, that's right. I mean, she chose not to go to university. She got an offer at university, but chose not to. Um, and, um, you know, is now uh, highly qualified, um, um, uh, speaks fluent English, fluent, fluent Spanish, um, and knows everything about, uh, uh, about Valves, which is the, the firm she's working for. And she's in the business of marketing valves. And she's probably competing with some British firm that makes valves. Uh, And who's the British firm got um, that's equipped to compete with her? I dread to think, you know? Right. Um, And so that's the the, the sort of uh, saga of um, building a, a, a structure in which People can live in their hometown. Lena was from a small town uh, in northern Germany. Um, uh, So you can stay where you feel you belong, um, but acquire a set of skills 
which enable you to work for a world-beating firm in that town. Mm. Um, now, the town doesn't need every firm in the town to be world-beating. It needs a, enough people to be employed with that level of earning capacity that they can compete at the world level, that that then raises the demand for all the other goods and services in the town. And so yeah. the town can be, have mass prosperity with most people not um, doing the, the jobs that are competing at a world level. Um, so you don't have to fixate on that, but you have to make sure that every, every region of a, of a country has at least one place, and preferably several, uh, that can compete at the world level. Yeah, and there you've got that mutuality again because you describe how the, the local polytechnic, which of course we've lost, lost in the UK, or technical college, yeah, yeah. Uh, co-creates with the local firms, you know, curricula, you know, that suit the needs of the, yeah, of the, it, the industry. Yeah, and it has to be mutuality because if you leave it just to an individual firm, the incentive for that individual firm is to poach. Um, why waste money training when you can poach a trained worker either from another firm in the locality or from Poland or wherever, you know? Yeah. So um, that was the British model, uh, just poach. I mean, the, the most disgraceful um, was not what firms did, it was what the British government did itself, um, which was we got, uh, we got 18 of the top 100 universities on earth in terms of research calendar, right? 18 of the top 100. No other country has got that density of world-class research universities. Right? So um, one of the things that our 18 universities, world-class research universities, very good at um, is medicine. So you'd think we'd be training loads and loads of doctors um, who could then staff not just our own national health service, um, but the health services around the world. Um, instead, um, um, the training in British universities has been limited by the Treasury for decades um, because training a doctor is quite expensive. It costs about £60,000. Um, so why do it? Why do it? Let's take them from Sudan. Sudan spends public money training doctors at its university, University of Khartoum, which is not one of the top 100. Um, uh, and, of course, Sudan is very, very poor. So devoting public resources to training doctors in the Sudan is a big national sacrifice. Um, well, there are more Sudanese doctors working in London than in the whole of Sudan. Well, that really is a travesty, isn't it? I mean, Some that's... of them are not even working as doctors. They're driving taxis or something. But, you know, yeah. um, I work with the government of Ghana. The government of Ghana has to train two doctors for everyone it can keep um, because Britain is training half the doctors for everyone it needs. Um, so the doctors trained in Ghana at Ghana government's expense and then um, lured into Britain. Um, and that, that is a deliberate policy of the British Treasury 
to save money. Um, of course, it's a very short-term strategy. Um, uh, I, I regard it as a deeply, deeply unethical. Um, you know, we have all this posturing about our aid budget when actually we're ransacking countries of the, the skilled resource they desperately need. Mm. Um, so it's not just that firms have this individual temptation to poach skilled people um, from other firms. The British government's doing it, poaching from other governments. Yeah. Um, and that's been explicit treasury policy. I mean, how this can be allowed to persist as a even remotely ethical purpose, I, I cannot fathom. Hmm? But it's but that's what is it, it is. And the reason is every year the British Treasury says, well, this year we're very short of money. Um, and so let's squeeze it a little bit more. So the number of doctors we train relative to what we need has been going down and down and down. It's, 2018 was the first year where we actually trained less than half the doctors we need. And it's getting worse. It's right. just shameful. And I would guess that's true in other professions. Yes, yeah. But it's, but it, um, you know, so this is what individual maximization does, whether it's in the private sector or the public sector. Um, if you don't have some ethical purpose. Now, as I say, it doesn't have to be incredibly noble. Um, you don't have to be a, you know, a bleeding-hearted saint to believe that it's not a very ethical strategy to poach um, the poor country of its doctors. It doesn't seem a very ethically uh, demanding level. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's not pitching the bar at an impossibly high level. It's just saying behave decently. And once the question's framed like that, um, uh, people both in, fir in firms, in the city, um, and in government would behave decently. It's just that it's, in Britain it's not been framed like that. The discourse has been completely different. Um, and it's that, it's that discourse which, which, which is what books like The Future of Capitalism have been trying to challenge, really. Right. But, but I guess the context, again, for, for, the, for creating this common purpose, communicating a common purpose, um, I mean, you looked at Denmark, right? We're a relatively homogenous culture, you know, long history. Um, to what extent does that play in, you know, culture and, you know, the homogeneity of the, of the society? Because then we have a different challenge in places like Britain where we've got a, a fairly diverse society. I think the, um, it's perfectly possible. I mean, first of all, all um, nations are artificial constructs. Yeah? Um, uh, if you go back even to the 19th century, Denmark was viciously divided, viciously. Um, there was a totally brutal aristocracy um, that was literally stringing up peasants um, on trees, hung, hanging them, uh, dead peasants hung on trees to show uh, other peasants um, 
uh, where power lay, right? Um, modern Denmark has not always been Denmark, right? Um, if we go far enough back, uh, we get to Viking traditions, which were running uh, a very big um, uh, slave trade, in which you know, this the, the, the Britons were being um, uh, kidnapped and sold off uh, to slave markets in Rome and Baghdad. So um, uh, it's not that uh, Danes are naturally homogeneous, it's that they've been brought together um, uh, by um, uh, good um, political leadership over, over the course of a relatively short period. Um, and so all nations are artificial constructs. They're built by good leaders around common purpose. And it doesn't also, it, the, the nicest thing, it doesn't actually have to be built from the leaders. It can be built bottom up. And so there's one final encouraging um, book I'll turn to. Here we go. The Oxford. Uh -huh. Robert Putnam. Robert Putnam. Um, the, uh, uh, the, 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 I'm doubting that the top political sociologist in the world, um, uh, uh, university chair at Harvard, are fantastic. Um, uh, honorary doctorate from, uh, from Oxford and from Oak. Um, and what, what's the upswing about? Um, it's about uh, America uh, in 1900. Um, it looks quite a tease. It starts with a description of America, and you say, yeah, I know, it's bloody awful. Um, people are very, very selfish, and... It goes on like this for seven pages, and you say, yeah, yeah, sure, sure, but we know that. Um, he says, I'm describing America in the year 1900, not 2020. Um, uh, and so he, he, he does all sorts of measures of selfishness, including a very comic one of just um, how many times in books and things is the word me used relative to the word we? Right. Um, and sure enough, in 1900 in America, it's a me society, um, uh, as is uh, America in 2021, you know, a very me society. Um, but um, America pulled out of the up. The upswing was the build up of communitarianism in America between 1900 and 1960. And there was a huge cultural move towards community, which was a bottom-up process happening in individual towns and cities where people came together around some very practical purpose, um, like get kids into school. Um, I didn't realize, but um, mass primary education in America was overwhelmingly achieved by a voluntary process at the community level rather than a top-down national policy. So it was a coming together across political divides um, uh, around very practical, pragmatic purposes like get kids into school um, or um, uh, make our towns safe from cholera 
very practical purposes where people came together across political divides, ethnic divides, what have you. Um, of course, not across the big racial divide, black, white in America. That, was, that, that wasn't tackled. So America by 1960 was far from perfect. Um, well, it's far from perfect now. Um, but it was able to, 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 to do a lot um, over that 60 years by coming together. And as, as, you know, the, the, the very encouraging message is it doesn't even have to be done top down. Um, there, was, there were some good political leaders, uh, like Theodore Roosevelt, um, who was a, a Republican leader who basically switched, who left the Republican Party. Um, uh, but it doesn't have to be. It, it was, it was, in many ways, Roosevelt was responding to this prior yeah. process around common purpose. And that is the very encouraging message that um, you can build across divides as long as you have some, some practical purpose that people worry about. And so yeah. you don't need, you, know, you can have disastrous societies which are ethnically homogeneous. And you can have multi ethnic societies. Speak of North Korea. <laughs> exactly, exactly, exactly. So, um, uh, um, uh, and if, 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 if all you needed was small societies, the, the continent where I work most, Africa, would be great if, if, if you want small societies with powerful leaders. Africa in the 1960s, 70s, 80s, 90s abounded with small societies, powerful leaders. It was completely disastrous, right? So um, uh, you don't. What you need is this combination of coming together around practical agendas um, uh, and learning to trust each other by working in a team around a purpose. That's what the, the, the process was that Putnam identifies, um, together with good leaders like Theodore Roosevelt or Metro Fredrickson, who um, uh, set, tries to sort of set a narrative which guides common purposes and then um, leaves... Um, uh, agency evolved. And so yeah. um, uh, uh, eth common ethnicity um, doesn't get you where you need to be unless you've got this coming together. Um, and you can come together across um, uh, diverse uh, ethnic boundaries. Um, and in, in some sense, diversity is a plus because it gives you different perspectives, different priors, which are quite helpful in tackling radical uncertainty, where you really don't know um, what to do in a situation. Having people come from rather different perspectives, saying, what about this, what about that, that can be quite helpful. Um, it's like noise being helpful in, in, yeah. in, in getting you to a solution. Um, right. what's, what's a killer is oppositional identities. Which, is what, which seems to, our society right now seems to be riven with. Building oppositional identities like crazy. Um, I did some work in Wales, um, uh, which is a small society with long history. You'd have thought it would be easy for Wales to come together. 
Um, uh, the first thing I was told when I arrived in Swansea was, our problem's Cardiff. Um, <laughs> and so on, and I got worse from, there, from then on. So, um, uh, so even, you know, sort of pretty homogeneous societies in small entities can, can um, contrive to see oppositional identities everywhere. Um, but it doesn't have to be like yeah yeah um and then i suppose it, it brings me to the question of how do we find these common purposes like what's the process for us discovering them and sort of building them yeah so um first of all because of 40 years of neglect there are an awful lot of very practical anxieties which are staring us in the face um you know, that's why the subtitle of the book is facing the new anxieties they're there if you just open your eyes and look, right? Um, and, uh, it is, I think, obligatory on the, as it were, the insider class, the, the people like me who are educated and living in prosperous places, to listen to people who are not so advantaged. And why... Why I was a better place to listen than most people was that I grew up in a world where people, my family, weren't well-educated and our city collapsed into um, uh, um, uh, basically impoverishment. And that's, so, that's why one of the reasons your book is having such resonance, right? Yeah. You've got yeah. an empathy that perhaps a lot of academics don't have. Yeah, so I I had a foot in each world, mm. and in that sense, I'm bilingual. Um, and we need more bilingualism. Um, people who can speak to and understand each of our bitterly divided uh, worlds and bring them together. Um, yeah. Once we start to focus on the anxieties that are common, there's so much practical stuff we can do. There's some very low-hanging fruit. Um, we can fix these problems. Other countries have already fixed them. And that's why I'll close with the one um, other way of rapid learning, if you're facing radical uncertainty, learn from others. Huh? Right which the British civil service was so arrogant it refused to do. Mm. British civil yeah. service thinks the only other country that exists is America, and as long as we do better than America in some respect, which is unfortunately not that hard in many respects, um, the civil service is congratulating itself. <laughs> it's not good enough. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, Paul, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> thank you. Um, well, uh, you know, <laughs> just, just such an enriching conversation for me. Okay, and I, let, I me hope for our, our... let me close with a message. Um, uh, I wrote the book as a readable book because I need ambassadors for the ideas. Huh? And, um, boy, the ideas are spreading. Uh, the book's in 20 languages. It's... it's most of my speaking engagements at the moment are in Latin America because for some reason uh, the book resonates deeply 
uh, with the bitterly divided societies across Latin America. So um, please uh, read the book. Um, I don't care whether you buy it or steal it or borrow it, but read it. You can listen to and, it on Audible. I, I listened to some of yeah, it, I yeah, consumed yeah, it through my yeah. ears. And, um, and, then, uh, and then be ambassadors for the ideas, because um, by uh, coming together, we really can uh, make a very much better society than the one we've got. Wonderful. Well, thanks once again. We'll put, we'll put a link to the book. Um, is there anything else you'd point people to? I mean, we could also link to some of the other books you've referenced in the yeah, show. Yeah, the books that I've mentioned are all yeah. uh, superb books, well worth, well worth uh, reading. Um, and for that matter, um, uh, Greed is Dead is a mercifully short book, um, which, uh, which, which, which is a sort of update. Um, right. Okay, on that note, Good. I can say bye-bye. Thank you so much for your time. Really appreciated it. The Being Human podcast was brought to you by First Human. For more on First Human's human-focused coaching and leadership programs, head to firsthuman.com.